That was a keeper. I don't know if we've done that song before. But we need to do it again. I liked it. This is a great day. I'm really excited to look at the life of Moses with you again. It just keeps getting better and better. If you'll remember, the last time we left the Israelites, they were being shuffled out of Egypt, being handed gifts of silver and gold. Now, everything they owned was basically whatever they could carry with them as they left the city. But I wonder, once they left the city limits, if they might have just kind of stopped and looked at each other and said, now what? <laughs> because you need to remember that we're talking about ancient times and there was not uh, uh, travel that people took like they do today um, all over the globe, all over the country. In fact, these were slaves, so chances are they'd never been out of Egypt ever before. And so very logically, they come to this place as they leave the land of Egypt and look at each other, maybe look at Moses and say, where do we go from here? What do we do? So let's see how that question is answered. Chapter 13, verse 17. Now when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near for God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence God led the people around the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went up in a martial array from the land of Egypt. Now look down at verse 21. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way. And in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night, from before the people. Well, there's our answer. <laughs> That's how they knew where to go. They were guided by that pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, because God would show them a way. And as we will see, God's way is always best. We see that as they leave Canaan, Can or Egypt, they go to Canaan, and if you were to travel in those times, there would have been a very logical path that you would take. If you'll look up here, this very top route is called uh, the, um, the Via Marie. It's the way of the sea. Okay, so remember, in ancient times, there's not this vast network of highways. There's one, two, maybe three ways to get from point A to point B. And most assuredly, this is the most popular, easiest, shortest way to get from Egypt to Canaan. And yet, God looked at that and said, even though it's the most popular way, it's not the best way. And so he chose a different route because he knew that the Israelites would face opposition as they traveled along this path because it was fortified by Egyptian garrisons. And as soon as they left the land of Egypt, they would walk right into the land of the Philistines, a warmongering, power-hungry people. And so you tell me, how are they going to feel about over a million people showing up at their front door unannounced? Not so good. And so God gives them a, a different route, a, a different path. And his guidance is always good. Now before we move on, I want us to look at a verse that I purposefully skipped. Turn back to verse 19. 
Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Now, don't miss the imagery of what's happening here. I'm going to make some uh, suppositions that I think are highly likely, and, that, and they're based on this fact. Last week, we talked about Egyptian royalty. We talked about the very specific burial process that they went to for royalty. We know that Joseph was royal within the court of Pharaoh. And so very likely, he was buried like they were, mummified, placed in a coffin. So imagine in your mind all these people moving, carrying this life-size coffin along with them as they traveled from Egypt to Canaan. Would it not be a constant reminder of Joseph's faith, who made them promise, when you go to the land of Canaan, take me with you and bury me there. Why did he say that? Because he knew that Egypt was not the land that God had promised. It's not where they belonged. That was Canaan, and they would be faithful to go to that place, and God would be faithful to provide. Now, you may remember the summer challenge that Roger gave us, Hebrews chapter 11. You remember Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 says that by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts through faith. Even though he is dead, he still speaks. The very same thing is happening here. Even though Joseph is dead, his faith still speaks. God made a promise. Joseph believed that promise. And they are carrying him with them into that promise. Don't miss the imagery of how significant that would have been for them. And they're going to need it. And here very shortly, as we'll see. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before this place. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. Between Migdal and the sea. You shall camp by the front of Baal Zephon, opposite by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the sons of Israel, or say of the sons of Israel, they are wandering aimlessly in the desert. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And so they did so. Now, God tells Moses to lead the Israelites basically backtracking on land that they've already covered. They're going to retrace some steps that they've already taken. And I don't know about you, but as I'm leaving the land of Egypt, I'm wanting to get as far away from that as I possibly can. I don't want to turn around and walk back towards it. So in some ways, this is a little bit confusing, a little bit discouraging. And when we learn at the end of verse 3, it says that the wilderness was shutting them in. So what I want you to know here is that God has basically led them down a dead-end street. They are surrounded by desert with their back up against the Red Sea. And we see in verse 4 why God would possibly do such a crazy thing. He knew that Pharaoh's heart was hard and that he would use that to honor his name. 
He knew that if Pharaoh was given the opportunity to take revenge, he would do it. And so God is planning to use the evil intentions of Pharaoh to accomplish a divine outcome. Now think about that. God is going to take Pharaoh's revenge and bring about redemption. Look at how that happens in verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart towards the people, no surprise. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him. And he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots, that's three times, keep that in mind, of Egypt with officers all over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea beside this place in front of Baal Zephon. And Pharaoh drew near. The sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. In verse 8, we see that when the Israelites leave Egypt, it says that they went out boldly. And we would understand why. They had seen God's provision for them. They had witnessed his power being demonstrated for them. They went out boldly. But all of that changed in an instant. Because in verse 10, when they saw Pharaoh and his army coming after them, it says they became very frightened. Now, in one sense, you can't blame them, right? Because they're being uh, chased by what was arguably the world's greatest military force at the time with what is arguably the world's greatest advancement in military technology at that time, known as the chariot. That's why it's repeated so often. It doesn't want you to miss the fact that they are chasing after the Israelites with chariots, which means they can move large amounts of people over a very long distance in a very short amount of time. So yes, they had reason to be frightened. But at the same time, has not God already demonstrated his power sufficiently? Is that not why they walked out of Egypt boldly? They had seen his power displayed ten times in those ten plagues. Ten examples of an unmatched power. Ten very good reasons as to why he would come through in this very situation as well. In verse 10, we see that the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Now look at verse 11. Then they say to Moses, it is, because there were no gr- is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you would have taken us away to die here in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone, that we might serve the Egyptians? In other words, we told you so. For it would have been better to, for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They cry out to the Lord, but before they gave him a chance to answer, they turned and directed their complaints towards Moses. Basically saying, Moses, this is all your fault. We told you so. 
even to the point that they've said, we would rather be safe as slaves in Egypt than endure the difficulties of living in freedom in the wilderness. You see, they had already determined by their language that they were going to die. They knew that they were going to have graves and they were going to be buried right here in the middle of the wilderness. They had determined that in their mind. So their cry out to God in verse 10 was not a faith-filled prayer. It was fearful desperation, which is the very reason why Moses turns and rebukes them. Look at verse 13. But Moses said to the people, do not fear. In the original Hebrew language, this is of the strongest emotion that a human being can muster. He's looking at their faces, he's pointing his finger, and he's saying, Israelites, do not fear. And then he goes on. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them Again, forever, the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Don't fear. Stand still. Watch God and stop talking. That's what Moses says. And the reason I think he's so strong in his emotion is because he's been here before. He knows what it's like to lose perspective and fall apart. You remember when he first came into Egypt and do, did what essentially God told him to do, and he said, go to Pharaoh. Tell him to let my people go. Pharaoh heard that request and said, I don't care who you are. I don't care about your God, and I don't care about your people. In fact, I'm going to make life miserable for them, and that's exactly what he did. Do you remember what Moses said after those events? Let's go back and look. Chapter 5, Exodus chapter 5, so keep your finger where we are right now, but turn to Exodus chapter 5 and look at verse 22. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came Pharaoh to Pharaoh to speak of your name, he has not uh, done anything but harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. This is all your fault. Didn't I tell you? Does this sound familiar? Moses has been here before, but not today. God has proven himself to be faithful over and over again. And so Moses will stand strong. And he'll tell the Israelites, he'll say, look, this is not our battle. We don't stand a chance against those guys, but the Lord will fight the battle for us. So, don't fear. Stand still. Watch God. And stop talking. Which is exactly what they did. And as we'll see, the events that unfold are the very familiar events of what took place at the Red Sea. But I want us to look closely at the instructions that God gave to Moses. Look at verse 16. Verse 16. As for you, Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. Moses, that's your job. One verse. Verse 17. As for me, God, 
Behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all of his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. The angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved before them and stood behind them. So it came about that between the camp in Egypt and the camp of Israel, that there was a cloud along with darkness. Yet it gave light at night. Thus the one who did not come near the other at night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back. And a strong east wind blew all night and turned the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall on the, uh, to them on their right hand and on their left. We will see that God's protection is always secure. God's way is always best. God's protection is always secure. The angel that had guided them, who had walked before them, now stood behind them. And and it says that there was a great cloud that covered the Egyptian soldiers, so much so that it created darkness amongst the Egyptian camp. And so much so that it says that no one came near the other one at night. In my mind, they are paralyzed in fear. Why? Because they're covered in darkness. Does that sound familiar? The plague of darkness. Not many days ago, and now here it is again. This is not good. Meanwhile... God provides light and direction for the Israelites. He causes a a strong east wind to blow, to to push back the waters of the Red Sea and to dry the land on the sea bottom, on the seafloor, so that when the people of Israel walked through, they walked on dry land with water standing on their right and on their left. Now look at verse 23. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit of, And all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen, went in after them into the midst of the sea. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and a cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve. He made them to drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against us. God lifts that curtain of darkness from the Egyptians, and the first thing they see are the Israelites taking off across the Red Sea. At first sight, they see this, and they, this is our chance. Let's go get them. And so they head off into hot pursuit. We learn that as they make their way across the Red Sea, they experience some of the very same things the Israelites did. They, too, are walking on dry land. They, too, have water on their right and on their left. But then, all of a sudden, something strange begins to happen. The chariots start to swerve. The horses start to lose their footing. What is going on? The ground is becoming slippery. The dry land is turning into thick mud. The chariots are getting stuck. And I think the confusion is, what do we do right now? Do we get off and go back? Do we, do we press on? Do we walk on foot? Our chariots are stuck. There's confusion. There's mayhem. But there are a few who are pretty smart because they say, oh, no, 
We've been here before. Their God is fighting for them, and he's greater than anything we've got. And they were right. Look at verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots, over their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak when the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them, not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The Israelites stood in awe as they watched the outcome of God's judgment wash on the shore. Isn't it fitting, an ironic twist, that the people who attempted to destroy the Israelite community by drowning their firstborn sons found their mightiest men drowned in the Red Sea by the judgment of God. And I want you to notice the progression of how things developed. Did you notice that the Israelites started out fearful? They thought they were going to die. Then God provided a path for them, and they took that path, following where he led them. Then they stood in awe when they saw the result of God's power on display, and then they believed. Look again at verse 31. When the Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians. The people feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord and in his servants. Don't miss the fact that God made a way and then they believed. He did not wait for them to believe in order to save them. He saved them so that they might believe. That's the way of salvation. That's the grace of God. And the only right response when you see the hand of God working in that way is to sing songs of praise, to lift your voices in a way that brings honor and glory to Him. And that's exactly what takes place. The beginning in chapter 15, for the first 21 verses, you see the lyrics of the song that they sang to celebrate God's redemptive work in their lives. Now, we're not going to look at every line of this song, but let me highlight kind of the three main categories that this song is about. The first one is who God is. The second is what God has done. And the third is what the response will be. Before we look at those themes, I want you to notice who's the worship leader in these songs of praise. Turn to verse 20. Chapter 15, verse 20. Miriam. The prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out from with her 
with timbrels and with dancing. Miriam answered, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and the rider he has hurled into the sea. Miriam. Remember Miriam? The sister of Moses who rescued Moses out of the Nile? Miriam. The one who's seen God's hand of provision from the very beginning until the very moment which they now experience. Who else better to lead the Israelites in praise? It's Miriam who joins with them and and leads them in worshiping because they have witnessed God's hand firsthand. They proclaim God as their strength, as their song, as their salvation. His power is greater than any God's. They have seen that displayed firsthand over and over again. They have witnessed that power and proclaim, You, O Lord, will reign forever and ever. They sing about how God's loving kindness has led them, those that He has redeemed, how His strength has has guided them, how He has overthrown those who have been risen up against him and and how he's brought judgment on those who defiled his name and so the israelites sing praise to his name they've witnessed his hand and the only right way to respond to god's saving work is through songs of worship that's why we do what we do every time we come together as god's people we're doing the same thing as they did And then I want you to notice something in verse 17. Look at that with me. Verse 17, it says, You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Do you see, because of what God has done, they now have a renewed conviction about what God will do. They're speaking in future tense about what they will do on the mountain that God will have for himself. They were speaking about what God will do in the land that he has promised them and how he will establish them. God's past provision has given them a future filled with hope. And the same is true for you and I. When we look at God's past provision, we have a future filled with hope. Now, as you might expect, the Red Sea is kind of a a milestone event in the Old Testament, much like the resurrection is in the New Testament. In fact, the two are very connected to one another. The Red Sea and the cross are very much alike. Think about the correlation. The Israelites had their back against the wall. They were in a place where there really was no way of escape. They had determined in their mind that they were going to die, that evil would win as the Egyptians continued to close in. Now think about the cross. Doesn't it look like the very same thing? It looks like the Savior who had came to deliver them is now being put to death. Evil is going to win. This does not look good. But in the midst of the impossible, God made a way. At both Calvary and the Red Sea, God used the evil intention of mankind to accomplish a divine good. 
He used hatred and revenge to bring about redemption. Both at the Red Sea and at the cross. And in both cases, it was his plan all along. In both cases, he moved first. He provided a way so that they might believe. And when we look at the cross, the very same thing is happening. (laughs) Through the cross, he has provided a way. He moved first so that we might look upon that and believe because we trust in him. Now, if that's truly what you believe, then your heart, your life should be a song of praise. It's the only right response to God's saving work. (laughs) Your goal should be to bring praise and, and glory to his name because here's the reality that we know to be true. He will bring judgment for unbelief. That's as certain as the day of redemption and how sobering it must have been for those Israelites who have been saved to now look and see the reality of God's judgment washing upon the shore. So much so that they could no longer remain silent and they were compelled to sing praise. And in the very same way, when we look upon God's redemption, we should be compelled to no longer remain silent, but to speak boldly of our faith because of what he has done. I know this weekend at the women's retreat, there were those who spoke from within our own body, uh, giving testimony to God's work in their life. And that does not mean that life has always been easy. In fact, there are stories of great difficulty and struggle and pain. But these are women who've seen enough of God's work in the past that they have a hope-filled future. And so why else would they get up there and tell their story if they didn't believe that there would be a good ending that God had promised them? And so they go through the pain and difficulty to share that story. You know what they're doing? They're singing Miriam's song. They're singing Miriam's song. A song of praise. A song of thanksgiving. A song of a future filled with hope. There are times that I know that we all need reminders, right? That's why the book is filled with reminders, story after story, reminding us of God's provision. So let me remind you this morning, the Lord is our strength. He is our refuge. He is our salvation. His loving kindness will lead us. His strength will guide us. And I know that there are days, and maybe today is one of those days, that, that are filled with what, what seems like a dark cloud of confusion. But if you find yourself in the midst of that place, let me encourage you with what Moses spoke. Don't fear. Stand still. Watch God and stop talking. Listen. Listen. And see how he provides a way. I have great confidence. Based on the long history of God's faithfulness. That if you give him a chance. 
He will show you the way. Trust in him. And he can take any circumstance, however dead-endish, if that's a word, (laughs) it might seem. We find ourselves in some of the worst predicaments, right? That seem there's no way out of this. We are surrounded by wilderness with our back against the sea. We're going to die here. And yet, God has planned all this beforehand so that his name might be honored, even if it means using evil to accomplish a divine purpose, using hatred and revenge to bring redemption. That's who he is. And so you can take great confidence in no matter what situation you are in, that God is greater than any of those things around you. And you can trust him. That should be a peaceful place to put a stake in the ground. So let me encourage you today to renew that trust. To renew your assurance of his faithful provision. You know, they had the ten plagues. We have that and so much more recorded in this book that describes the faithfulness of God through every generation, including this one. And so let's be faithful to trust in Him and to live a life that speaks of Him. Let me pray, and then Marcus got an introduction to make, if Mark is still here. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the chance to be together this morning and just to be reminded that you are faithful. And I know we have, we maybe are, and I'm certain that we will be in situations that feel confusing, that feel cloudy, and we wonder how in the world we're going to get out of an impossible situation, and yet you have proven yourself over and over again faithful in your ability to provide a way, to take the most awful situation and bring about a redemptive outcome for the praise and glory of your name. It's been your plan all along. So I ask on behalf of my brothers and sisters in Christ that this morning in particular, that they might find within themselves a renewed sense of hope, a renewed conviction based on what you've done in the past to have a hope-filled future and that they will speak freely speak boldly of the faith and trust in you because that's what their hope is built on father may we live that out purposefully as we leave this place today we ask this in your name amen no no is the answer Okay, you're dismissed.